We're living down in Egypt. But don't let Egypt get you down. Throughout the Bible, we've talked about this many times, that Egypt is a picture of the world. And we draw so much understanding through the Scriptures as we study through when Egypt is talked about, when we make a simple comparison to the world in which we live. Tonight, we're going to spend a lot of time, the whole time, we're going to spend in Egypt. Jeremiah 42 all the way through 46, we're going to skip over chapter 45 and do that on Sunday morning. So really, it's, it's just three chapters, not four. But we're in Egypt pretty much the whole time. Let's start back a little bit, chapter 42, verse 19, and get into Egypt with a running start. The Lord has spoken to you, O remnant of Judah, this is Jeremiah speaking, saying, do not go into Egypt. You should clearly understand that today I have testified against you. Now you might say, well Rick, if the world is Egypt and Egypt's a picture of the world and God's saying don't go to Egypt, what can we do? We're in the world. Exactly. But you don't have to live like you are. You don't have to go to Egypt. The Lord told the, the remnant there, this is a scattered, leftover, pathetic, poor, uh, bedraggled Jews left in the land the infirm, the sick, the elderly, and then those who came back who had fled during the onslaught of Babylon before, who had fled to places like Jordan and, and Syria and down into the Negev. And they're now, they've all come back and they're gathered together, this, this little uh, cadre of Jews, and they've been pulled and torn one way or the other. Remember they had Gedaliah, we talked about on Sunday, was the governor, good guy but kind of gullible, didn't believe that his life was in any danger. Well, he gets assassinated. And then Ishmael, the assassin, takes all of the people and begins to rush up to Ammon to try and find safety and protection with the Ammonites, their enemies. And then he's stopped by our hero, Yohanan, who grabs him and brings him back. But then Yohanan wants to go down to Egypt. Which is why they came to Jeremiah saying, Hey, pray to the Lord and ask Him for us. Whatever He says, that's what we'll do. So Jeremiah comes back with a word from the Lord saying, Don't go to Egypt. You stay in Judah. Stay here, I will protect you. Stay here, you will plant. Stay here, you'll get the produce of the fields and the vines. I will take care of you. I'll look after you. But of course, they have other plans. The Lord sees right through them. Jeremiah says, the Lord says, do not go into Egypt. He says in verse 20, for you have only deceived yourselves. For it is you who sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our God, and whatever the Lord our God says, tell us so, and we will do it. So I have told you today, but you have not obeyed the Lord your God, even in whatever He has sent me to tell you. Verse 21 is interesting. How have they not obeyed the Lord? They just got the message. But see, Jeremiah knows what the Lord has put upon his heart, and that is that their intentions were already to head south. We think it's the act itself. Jesus says, no, it's the heart. And the heart always makes the decision before the action that follows. The decision had been made. We're going to Egypt. And so, they'd already headed south. Therefore, you should now clearly understand that you will die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence in the place where you wish to go to reside. But as soon as Jeremiah, whom the Lord their God had sent, had finished telling all the people all the words of the Lord their God, that is, all these words, Azariah the son of Hoshiah, and Yohanan the son of Korea, and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, you're telling a lie. 
The Lord our God has not sent you to say you are not to enter Egypt to reside there. My God wouldn't say that. (laughs) My God wouldn't do that. That's what they're saying. And they say in verse 3, But Baruch, the son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to give us over to the hand of the Chaldeans. I wonder what Baruch was doing at that moment. (laughs) What? What? The innocent bystander? They pick him out of the crowd? So they will put us to death or exile in Babylon. They are so afraid of the Babylonians, afraid of the terror of this might, that they want to find consolation and comfort in Egypt. Sometimes we can get afraid of things and so we find our comfort in the world. So Yohanan, the son of Korea, verse 4, and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to stay in the land of Judah. But Yohanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces took the entire remnant. Note that word, took. It implies force. It implies against their will, at least some of them. Took the entire remnant of Judah who had returned from all the nations to which they had been driven away in order to reside in the land of Judah. They took, verse 6, the men, the women, the children, the king's daughters, that would be Zedekiah's daughters who were spared, and every person that Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the grandson of Shaphan, together with Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch the son of Neriah. And I believe, and I think it's implicit in the text, that Jeremiah and Baruch were dragged along. That Jeremiah would not have on his own wanted to go to Egypt. At at worst, I guess you could say, perhaps Jeremiah chose to go and to stay with the remnant, perhaps led by the Lord to do so. But I think at best, and probably more likely, is they were dragged along against their will by Yohanan and the commanders, corralled and drawn down into Egypt. And we're told in verse 7, they entered the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they went in as far as Tachpankes. And I want to note this, when the Lord ceases to be the focus of a person's heart, things can go south very quickly. And so they did. Now I want to make a quick correction. Sunday I made a comment that it had been 500 years that it had just taken 500 years from when they entered the land to when they went back to Egypt. Not so. It had been 500 years since the rise of the Davidic kingdom. It had been 900 years since they came into the land. I forgot the 400 years of the judges. <laughs> they came into the land, judged for 400 years, then Saul, the first king, and then David, Solomon, and the divided kingdom on down. So it had been 900 years, almost a millennium, that they had been there in the land, under God's protection, the land of promise, And after all that time, and after all the proof that God had given them of His greatness and His glory, they head back down to Egypt. Defeated, hopeless, pitiable, they go back to the old haunt. What was the real problem with Yohanan and his men? Well, I guess it was twofold. Partially it was fear of the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. But the bigger problem, I think, is pointed out for us there in verse 2. They're called the arrogant men. The arrogant men. That word arrogance in the Hebrew is zaid. Zaid. It literally means proud, insolent, and presumptuous. Have you ever been called arrogant? Specifically, have you ever been called arrogant for your faith? I have. 
I've been called arrogant before. It doesn't feel good. It kind of lets the wind out of your sails. It makes you pause and say, Am I? Is that what's really going on here? Am I just some cocky moron who thinks he knows something? Makes you pause and struggle. But I've thought about this over the years. And I realized over time there is a huge difference between confidence in Christ, conviction in His Word, and arrogance with a personal agenda. Those are two different things. Having confidence can sometimes just make some people a little uncomfortable. You're so sure of yourself. That's just arrogant. No, it's not arrogance. It's confidence. And there is a difference. It is not arrogance to speak the truth in love. And we need to be sure it is in love. That's where I get checked from time to time. Am I speaking this because I just am enjoying the judgment bandwagon? Or am I speaking this because I love God and I love His people? To speak the truth in love is not arrogance. It's arrogance when we presume to know better than God. That's arrogance. That's the height of arrogance. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, May it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It is in the cross of Jesus that we become separated from the world. Separated out of Egypt. God has called us out of Egypt to be holy like He is holy. But not in our own accomplishment. In His grace. By His cross. Which is the least arrogant place to be. The foot of the cross is the most humble place a person can bow. Putting yourself beneath Jesus on the cross. And the sacrifice that He went through for us. The prophet Habakkuk said in chapter 2 verse 4. I like Habakkuk. He's just kind of a kooky guy. He said, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. You know what that means? As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. It means he's not thinking straight. The more the pride, the less clearly we think. Our soul's not right. Our our mind, our thoughts are, are messed up when we're proud. But he goes on and says, but the righteous will live by faith. And that's the great counter to arrogance. It's not humility. The counter to arrogance is faith. Because faith faith develops humility, which in turn develops vision. Arrogance develops unbelief, which in turn causes blindness. Think that through with me. Arrogance causes unbelief which brings about blindness. Literally an inability to see and understand the world. To recognize that we are living in Egypt. To understand what's happening around us. One of the tweets that came out after the bombing earlier this week, the the two bombs going off at the Boston Marathon, one of the tweets, perhaps you saw this, was was from an actor. I don't think actors should be allowed to tweet. (laughs) They can monkey around all they want, but tweeting is, is... right out. This actor tweeted that we need to get rid of the Second Amendment because the two bombs went off. And I'm like, you know what the problem is? I mean, if you want to talk about bomb control, I'm down with that. But here's the problem. It's not the guns and it's not the bombs. It's the human heart. And it's the sin that is increasing and the lawlessness that is increasing in this age in which we live. You want to fix the problem? Let's call everybody to a National Day of Prayer. How about we start there? 
And then from there, start inviting people to get into the Word of God so that we can get our minds straightened out. So that we can get the pride out of the way, thinking presumptuously we can fix the problem. We can't. But the love and the grace of our God and Savior Jesus Christ can fix anything. And that's what we need. But we're missing that. Our world misses it. Our government misses it. The media misses it because they're blinded by unbelief. Arrogance breeds unbelief, which causes blindness. And the Bible's clear about it. 2 Corinthians 4.4, you know the verse. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Put it this way. Where there's unbelief, the obvious becomes obscured. There are things that you, as a follower of Jesus, you'll be sitting there watching the news, you'll see something you go, well, that doesn't make any sense. And yet the talking heads will talk about it as if it does make sense. Don't you people see what... I mean, I talk through this TV screen sometimes. This doesn't make... This is just a waste of... Why are you talking about this? You see things that it seems like the world is just blind to. The black and white becomes gray. Truth gets relatively blurry. But faith opens eyes. Belief brings vision. The remnant of Judah had no vision at this point. They were running in unbelief. The leaders were running in unbelief. If they believed and trusted the Lord, they would have believed Jeremiah, who, by the way, had never been wrong. Not once. He had a perfect prophetic track record. All they had to do was go back all the writings and scroll of Jeremiah, which, by the way, much of it was written at that time, and compare what Jeremiah prophesied with what had happened, and they would have known. He's right. Trust the Lord. We'll be okay. Stay put. We'll be fine. You'll see what the problem is in a few moments. So they run blind back down to Egypt, and it's time for a little object lesson. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah at Tachpankes and said... Take some large stones in your hands and hide them in the mortar in the brick terrace, which is at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace in Tachpankes in the sight of some of the Jews. Now, you might think that would be tough to do, but this was his winter palace, and probably, most likely, at this time, Pharaoh wasn't there. So he was up in another palace. So that palace might have had a few guards wandering around on the inside, but this would, be, would have been a relatively easy thing to do. Go take some big stones and hide them under the mortar in the terrace there. And say to them, verse 10, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm going to send and get Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, note this, my servant. God can use anyone he wants. And in this case, Nebuchadnezzar is serving the purposes of the Lord. And I am going to set his throne right over these stones that I have hidden, and he will spread his canopy over them. Uh-oh. No, no, no. See, we came to Tachpankase to hide out from Nebuchadnezzar. That's why they're down there. They're trying to get away. And Jeremiah is saying, see these stones I just buried? That's going to be underneath his pavilion. Nebuchadnezzar's coming. He will come and strike the land of Egypt, verse 11. Those who are meant for death will be given over to death. Those who are meant for captivity to captivity. And those for the sword to the sword. Isaiah used very similar language. And I shall set fire to the temples of the gods of Egypt, and he will burn them and take them captive. Uh, Just a quick side note. I don't really want a god that someone can capture. (laughs) 
is this is this where you want to put your faith? You know, in a God that can be hauled off on a cart? <laughs> Amazing. So he will wrap himself with the land of Egypt as a shepherd wraps himself with his garment and he will depart from there safely. And that picture is very simply saying as easy it is for a shepherd to grab a robe and throw it around his shoulders, that's how easy this is going to be for Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to come sweeping in here. He's going to cause great destruction. He's going to set up a throne in this city, in this spot, by the way, right on this place, on this terrace. And then he's going to leave having accomplished all that the Lord sent him to accomplish. Verse 13, he will also shatter the obelisks of the Heliopolis. The Heliopolis is also Bet Shemesh. Some of your Bibles may say Bet Shemesh. It's the house of the sun god, which is in the land of Egypt and the temples of the gods of Egypt. He will burn with fire. And once again, God is showing judgment on the false gods and the idolatry of Egypt. And he's using an idolatrous pagan king to do it. He's going to deal with the idolatrous pagan king and his idolatrous nation. We'll get there in a week or three. But for now, he's using that nation to deal with this nation. It's all in God's hands. This prophecy, as we read it, was perfectly fulfilled in the year 568 going into 567 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar comes flooding in. He sets up his canopy right on that spot. He does massive destruction in the land of Egypt. Then he goes home. Just as Jeremiah prophesied. Because of their fear of the Chaldeans, chapter 42, verse 18 tells us that, the people ran to the very place Nebuchadnezzar would set up his temporary throne. Had they stayed in the land of Judah, they would have been bypassed and left alone. But they didn't have vision to see that. They couldn't see what was coming. God saw what was coming and gave them a warning. Stay in Judah, you'll be fine. They couldn't see, but He did. Which is why learning how to see spiritually is so important. Which is why sticking to the Word of God in prayer is so massively important for us in these last days that we might learn to see what He sees. And hear what He hears. And understand what God has for us to understand. And not use the wisdom that's from below, but from above. And I'm getting way ahead of myself. But this prophecy in chapter 43 is absolutely packed with very specific events. Think about this. That Nebuchadnezzar would invade. Not some other king. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are going to invade. They're going to come all the way across from Babylon and invade Egypt. That they would have victory over Egypt. Who could tell that? Perhaps Egypt could fight back and protect themselves, but they wouldn't. The prophecy tells the exact location he'd spread his royal canopy. That word royal canopy is shafrur, which is hard to say, and it's the only time it's in the Bible. And it literally means like a, either a beautiful woven carpet or perhaps a woven carpet-like pavilion that would be above a throne. So even that, it's that specific. This is what's going to happen right here. The prophecy describes lives that would be lost to death, captivity, and the sword. It says specific Egyptian temples would be demolished. It even calls out Bet Shemesh, Heliopolis. It says the temple of the sun god, that's going down. Just want to let you know. I'm going to point out a few things that are going to happen so you can be absolutely certain that this is from the Lord who saw it ahead of time. And even that the gods of Egypt would be taken captive. And so the people, the Jews, are there in that very town, hiding out, And you might say, well, how could they have known that this would happen? You mean aside from the fact that Jeremiah told them? Aside from the obviousness of the prophetic word? See, 
I'm pointing this out for a reason. This is why I get a little rankled from time to time when people allegorize Bible prophecy. Because it could have happened right then. Now we'll see in a moment. They just denied the prophecy outright. But, get a few theologians involved. Get some higher scholars, some higher critics of the, of the Scriptures involved. And ask them, what does this mean? Well, it's entirely likely that the canopy may be speaking of the canopy of the heavens and the cloud and the stars up above. And, and off they go in their allegories. And the problem with allegoric, allegorizing prophecy is you strip the truth. Prophecy is not allegory. Unless the prophecy says it is. Unless the prophet says this is a picture for something else which they will do from time to time, but they're always absolutely clear. John in the book of Revelation is always clear. He always, when he says this is a picture or a sign, you know that it's metaphorical. Unless he says that, we take it at face value because it is what it is. How do you know that, Rick? Because every Hebrew prophecy that's been fulfilled has been fulfilled literally. God has shown that's why He tells us prophecy. It's not just a storyteller to give us some kind of nebulous idea about what might happen. He is specific. We see this time and time again. In Jesus' first coming, and many of you know this, He fulfilled literally over 300 prophecies of His first coming. Most of them prophecies He could have had no control over. The town He would be born in. Who has control over that? Except for God. His tribe and lineage. He had to come of the line of Judah, through the lineage of David, and by the way, you know this, he couldn't have come from David through Solomon, because that line was cursed. It had to then be from David through Solomon, through Natan, his son, and on around down that line, through Mary. So specific. Where he would grow up had to be Nazareth. Where he would do his ministry, it had to be Galilee of the Gentiles. What it would look like, there had to be Deaf people hearing, and blind people seeing, and the dead raised. These things were all listed, given in prophecy ahead of time. Jesus did them all. Precisely, literally, as spoken. His death, He would be pierced through for our transgressions. His burial, He would be buried with a rich man. Or in the burial site of a rich man. Though His grave would be assigned to criminals because He died on the cross, He instead would be buried with rich men. It's it's incredible. His His betrayal. How much to betray a Savior? 30 pieces of silver. The Bible told us that before it happened. And in each and every single case, all the way up to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to the minutest details, prophecy was fulfilled by Jesus. Now, if, if the blind, unbelieving world would just pause for a moment and consider how astounding that is, perhaps faith might creep in. But we're living in Egypt. And Egypt is very good at not giving us time to think. We'll get there in just a moment. I don't even know where we are. What am I talking about here? Yeah, okay, so we're to chapter 44. Prophecy. Prophecy should open our eyes. Prophecy is revelation. It is not, as as Jesus said to the church at Thyatira, it is not the bathos. The deep things, the secretive things. Someone comes along preaching a secretive gospel, be careful. Jesus said, what I tell you in secret, I want you to shout from the rooftops. I am making this clear and understandable so that my people can follow, so you can have eyes to see. 
by belief. Why are people still blind? It's unbelief. Interesting, Amos chapter 5, verse 19 gives a prophetic word and it, it is portrayed here. Amos says, it's going to be like when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> or he goes home and he leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. You know, it's out of the frying pan and into the fire. It's from bad to worse. Faith in the literal, true, actual word of God alerts us against lions and snakes and bears. Oh my. We have eyes to see. The word brings vision. By the way, the context of Amos 5.19, just as a side note, Amos 5.19 saying, when a man flees from a lion, a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him, the context of that is the day of the Lord. He's talking about the tribulation. He's talking about how bad it will be. It's an inescapable day for the world. Even as the Jews rebel and rush down to Egypt, they get themselves cornered in an inescapable position of rebellion. They cannot go any way to avoid the punishment that now is coming down to get them. Because they did not obey the Lord. Same for the world. Egypt is not protection. Egypt is danger. Don't go to Egypt. The inescapable day of the Lord. Unless, of course, you're in Jesus. Well, then the day of the Lord, the tribulation, is completely escapable. Praise the Lord. It is not for you. God has not destined us for wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Amen. So it's the arrogance of this world that is so great that even the precision of prophecy is no prescription for poor vision and blindness. Faith is required. Chapter 44. Chapter 44 is the final message of Jeremiah. I know there are chapters following it, but it's the final message chronologically that Jeremiah receives that we have in actual writing. And so, Yohanan and all the arrogant men, remember they've led the people down to Egypt, now we're going to see how the people themselves feel about being in Egypt. Verse 1 of chapter 44. The word that came to Jeremiah. For all the Jews living in the land of Egypt, those who were living in Migdal and Tachpanches and Memphis, in the land of Pathros, so note those, those are the places the Jews were living, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you yourselves have seen all the calamity that I have brought on Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah. And behold, this day they are in ruins and no one lives in them because of their wickedness, which they committed so as to provoke me to anger by continuing to burn sacrifices and to serve other gods whom they had not known, neither they, you, nor your fathers. Yet I sent you all my servants, the prophets, again and again. See, this is what I was just talking about, right? Saying, oh, do not do this abominable thing which I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ears to turn from their wickedness so as not to burn sacrifices to other gods. Therefore my wrath and my anger were poured out and burned in the cities of Judah and on the streets of Jerusalem so that they have become a ruin and a desolation as it is to this day. Again, another object lesson here. Look at the land of Judah. Look at Jerusalem. This is what happens when you disobey me. This is what happens when you serve pagan gods, when you become idolatrous. This is my warning. You have the picture before you. You know what happens when you do this. Why do you do it? Verse 7, Now then, thus says the Lord, 
God of hosts, the God of Israel, why are you doing great harm to yourselves? So as to cut off from you man and woman and child and infant from among Judah, leaving yourselves without remnant, provoking me to anger with the works of your hands, burning sacrifices to other gods in the land of Egypt, where you are entering to reside, so that you might be cut off and become a curse and a reproach among the nations of the earth? Have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers, the wickedness of the kings of Judah? And the wickedness of their wives, your own wickedness and the wickedness of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. But they have not become contrite even to this day, nor have they feared, nor walked in my law before my statutes, which I have sat, which I have set before you and before your fathers. And this is a breathtaking reality. Absolutely astounding. Back in Egypt now again, 900 years later, the remnant of Israel, the remnant of Judah, are practicing idolatry. The whole purpose for the destruction of the land of Judah, right over their heads. They missed it. Their brothers and sisters, the exiles in Babylon, are being taught a very difficult lesson. In the land of idolatry... In the birthplace of idolatry, Babylon, all the exiles are there and God's working His discipline on them and it works because we know when they come back to the land, they don't practice idolatry anymore. I think it's kind of the Schick Shadel method, you know? I don't know if they still do that, but I remember when I was a kid, you'd go to Schick and they basically put you in a room and give you as many cigarettes as you wanted to smoke until you were just throwing up. I mean, the more you had to, you know, it was like overload until you got so sick of it, you just didn't want to smoke anymore. That's Babylon. I'm going to take you to the fountainhead of idolatry, and when you are just throwing up because you're so sick and tired of the idolatry, then I'm going to bring you back to the land. And guess what? You'll be cured. And they were. But this remnant that went down to Egypt was not cured. In their rebellion, they began to practice the idolatry that Josiah, the king of Judah, had wiped out. Remember Josiah, at the very beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, Josiah cleared the land of all idols. He burned down the high places. He got rid of all of it and called the people back to the temple to worship the one and true living God. But they remembered the idolatry of their parents and their grandparents and they come down to Egypt and they start up all over again. Why? Why do they do this? There's a word in verse 10 that tells us why. But they have not become contrite, even to this day. The word contrite there, daka in the Hebrew, it means contrite, it also means bruised, broken, and crushed. David uses the word in Psalm 51.17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, daka. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This heart has to break. Contrition is not an act of religion. Contrition is a painful realization of my need for Jesus and His sacrifice for me. And by the way, this word is used in another place. Daka is used in Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed. Daka. For our iniquities. 
the chastening of our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. The contrite heart is the one that recognizes the bruising and the crushing of Jesus who was crushed in my place, who was broken for me. And if that doesn't break a person's heart, I'm not really sure what will. You come to the Lord, you've got to come contrite. Idolatry is somewhat the opposite of contrition. How so? Idolatry, well, contrition is humble. It's a brokenness before the Lord who was crushed for us. Idolatry is self-elevating. Idolatry is self-emulating. Idolatry is taking all of the gods and fashioning them after myself, after my desires, after my needs, after my wants. I want success. We need a God for that. Molech. You know? I want pleasure and fertility. We need a goddess for that. Ashtoreth. And so the idols are simply man saying, I want something to do what I want it to do. It's self-serving. It's self-pleasuring. It is self-gratifying. It is all about the self. It's about my agendas. It's about my personal growth. It's about my success in this world. It's idolatry. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 says, Flee from idolatry. And Paul goes on and says, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. And I hope you're doing that tonight. Judge what is being said here. Judge what I say. Test it against the Scriptures. 1 John 5.21 John says, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. It's the last line in 1 John in the letter. He ends the whole thing with that sentence. Guard yourselves from idols. Why? Was idolatry rampant in the early church? No. But self-emulation and self-gratification and and selfish desire was still in the heart of every man and woman then, just as it is now. Those, again, who received the divine discipline in Babylon got cured of idolatry. Those who fled to Egypt continued to serve the self and became incredibly idolatrous. Verse 11, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. And by the way, when He calls Himself the Lord of hosts, you know what He's saying, right? Lord of armies. Anytime you see hosts, it's a host, it's an angelic army he's talking about. This is serious business. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am going to set my face against you for woe, even to cut off all Judah. And I will take away all the remnant of Judah who have set their mind on entering the land of Egypt to reside there, and they will all meet their end in the land of Egypt." They will fall by the sword and meet their end by famine. Both small and great will die by the sword and famine. They will become a curse, an object of horror, an imprecation, and a reproach. And I will punish those who live in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem. All you got to do, the Lord might say to Judah, is look at the burning rubble. That's what you've chosen. That's the punishment that's coming. As I have punished Jerusalem with the sword, famine, and pestilence. Verse 14. So there will be no refugees or survivors for the remnant of Judah who have entered the land of Egypt to reside there. And then to return to the land of Judah to which they are longing to return and live, but none will return except a few refugees. Well, why? Why do a few refugees get to return? God's grace just keeps spilling. His grace is always there. We need to understand, even for the remnant in Egypt, God's desire is that they live in the land. 
That's their desire. But their unbelief has blinded them from seeing what God wants for them, which is good things in the land. Now you think such a strong rebuke would at least cause people to back down a bit, right? The Lord of hosts has said this. If He came in here and spoke these words to us, I think I would step back and go, maybe we need to reevaluate the British Christian Fellowship and our programs. We need to rethink where we're headed here. If He spoke this about us moving over to Troxel Road and building a building there, I think maybe we might change the whole deal. They've been rebuked strongly by the Lord, but rebellion is like flood water. It just surges. It's hard to stop once it gets rolling. Listen in their own words to how they feel. Verse 15, Then all the men who were aware that their wives were burning sacrifices to other gods, along with all the women who were standing by, as a large assembly, including all the people, which would be the men and the women, who were living in Pathros in the land of Egypt, they responded to Jeremiah saying, As for the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you. (laughs) Are you kidding me? I added, are you kidding me? That's not in the text. Verse 17, But rather, we will certainly carry out every word that is proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem for then we had plenty of food and we were well off and saw no misfortune. Um, Babylon, no misfortune, what are you talking about? You see how blind they are in this unbelief, in this rebellion? They're going back to sacrificing because they believe those sacrifices blessed them in the old days. Verse 18. But since we stopped burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have met our end by the sword and by famine. And, said the women, when we were burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and were pouring out drink offerings to her, was it, made, was it without our husbands that we made her sacrificial cakes in her honor? and poured out drink offerings to her? We talked at length about the Queen of Heaven. I'm not going to spend much time on that this evening. Back in Jeremiah chapter 7, and if you missed that, you can hear it online. The Babylonians had a name for her, Ishtar. The Greeks called her Astarte. In the land of Canaan, she was Ashtoreth. You've heard other names for her as well. Venus, Eros, Isis, Diana, Mary. Rick, don't be anti-Catholic. Hey, I'm not the one who calls her the Queen of Heaven. It is the Catholic Church. And if you have a Catholic background and you're hanging on to that or whatever, you need to understand that. The Catholic Church designates Mary as the Queen of Heaven. The only Queen of Heaven in the Holy Scriptures is Ashtoreth. And I think there may be a connection there. Oh, not not between the real Mary, Jesus' mother. A humble, quiet, simple faithful young woman who God chose. And I am incredibly impressed with that Mary. And I may be going out on a limb here, but I think Mary probably would be absolutely shocked, embarrassed, and ashamed of what's been done to her name in the name of religion. She is not the Queen of Heaven. Mary will be in Heaven. She's going to be one of the many worshiping Jesus at the throne. And you know, no one's going to be paying her much attention. 
other than the attention that we pay to one another, we love each other and worship God together, but we're all going to be worshiping God together, people sometimes say, will not it be cool to see David? I'm not looking for David. <laughs> will not it be awesome to stand there with Peter and Paul and John? I don't care to see that. I mean, yeah, it'll be whatever. Jesus. Amen. Jesus, He's the one I want to see. He's who we're going to worship. He's the focal point of all things. The rest of us are all just kind of together. Amen. Mary will be there. Queen of Heaven. I don't think so. How do we get into these idolatrous messes? How do the people end up doing this kind of thing? How do we, living in Egypt, get drawn into idolatry, which can take so many different forms in today's age? Here's how. Look at the second half of verse 16. We are not going to listen to you, but rather we will certainly carry out, know this, every word that has proceeded from our Mouths. Jesus quote in Deuteronomy said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What proceeds out of our mouths? You want to put your faith in that? I've heard my mouth. I don't want to listen to that. John 6.35 Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. It is the Spirit, he says, John 6.63, who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Man will not, shall not live on bread alone, but on the bread of heaven, Jesus, who speaks words of truth and life, good things. Compare that to what comes out of the mouth of man. James calls it, uh, he says... James 3.8 No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing Hallelujah and cursing you, jerk. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. Now I may get into some trouble for saying this. But notice the last ones to get a word in here were the women. (laughs) And at this point, if you don't mind, I'm going to move my chair back a few feet. Verse 19, And said the women, when we were burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven, we were pouring out drink offerings to her. Some might say, well, with the women. Wait, it says, said the women, but that's in italic. So how do we know it was the women? Because they continue and say, was it without our husbands that we made her sacrificial cakes in her image and poured out drink offerings to her? The women are driving this gang. With their husbands full approval, which according to Torah law they needed. You don't have to go there right now, but Numbers chapter 30, verses 6 and 7, that that chapter, Numbers chapter 30, says when a woman makes a vow, she's bound to it, unless she gets married, and on the day that she makes that vow, her husband says, no, 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 we're not going to do that, well, then she's not bound to the vow. But if he never says anything, if he lets it go, then she's bound to the vow that she made. And these women have been making vows to Ashtoreth, and their husbands have been saying nothing about it. Why? Probably because they like the cakes. You know? I'll do anything for cake. Cakes and drink offerings, sign me up. Their wives are off sacrificing, making these little cakes. I don't even know what the cakes were. Were they like little Ashtoreth cakes? That would be weird. Have you ever seen an idol to Ashtoreth? The mini-breasted goddess? 
I can't even imagine a cake like that. Anyway, a couple of things amaze me here. Number one, for the women to talk back to the prophet is astounding. This is the arrogance of rebellion. The arrogant men are now the arrogant women. That they would shout out, that they would call out Jeremiah. Well, we're just not going to do what you say. (laughs) They are getting after him. That was completely inappropriate in that day. And you say, well, yeah, but that was then and this is now, right? Now we're far more enlightened than that patriarchal, chauvinistic, male-dominated, sexist society. We're better than that. I really, you know, bugs me when, when people call God's law in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament patriarchal, uh, unfair to women. If you say that the law is unfair to women, you haven't read the law. And I'm talking about the Hebrew law. Where this is before we even get to Jesus, who elevated women more than anybody has in history, by the way. Ever since the curse in the Garden of Eden, Jesus comes along, changes everything. Galatians 3.28 says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. There's no distinction now. You come to the Lord, you have the same place, daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the sons of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all equal before Him. Now, we have different roles. One is not better than the other, but God has called us to different roles. That's why we don't have any women shepherds or elders at the bridge. Because it's not a role that God designated for women in the Bible. Well, that's not fair. You know, there are things women do in the church far better than men. And I'm not even one who believes that men are elders because they're better at it than women. I think men are elders because if God didn't say men, you got to be elders, we wouldn't do anything. <laughs> But God knows our created nature. And He knows something we don't know. That we are happiest when we function the way He created us to function. When we accept the roles that He created us to be in. We we thrive in that. And we start to fall apart when we try to be something that God did not intend for us to be. Turn, Keep your finger in Jeremiah and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is just a word to the ladies. And please understand, this is not from Rick. This is the word of the Lord. But I think it's something sometimes overlooked. There's a word to the men too, so don't worry, we'll, we'll get them. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. He says, in the same way, you wives. Now, hang on there. I think this absolutely and beautifully applies to any woman Married or not, you can completely apply this to your life. And it makes sense. Listen. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So, wives, if you're going to church and your husband's not, the way to get him to go to church is not to wake him up every Sunday morning with a punch saying, Go to church! Why won't you? You're just not a spiritual leader that I needed in this family. Don't badger. Don't badger. Do what Peter says here. It's beautiful. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment... Now here's where I believe it goes for all women. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. 
So we can't do any of that? Not what he's saying. That's why the translators added the word merely there because the implication is this shouldn't be your focus. Obviously, there's not a problem with braiding your hair. But it is a problem if that's you're in the mirror, you know, three hours a day going, it's got to be perfect. <laughs> verse 4, but, and here's the verse, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. I want to be a godly woman, Pastor Rick. How do I do that? That's where you start. That's where you start. You put your heart in the hands of Jesus. You seek to be the gentle and quiet spirit that Jesus has called you to be. Not the bombastic, not the arrogant, not the fighting for your rights. You know what Jesus did? He gave up all rights. And then He said, take up your cross and follow Me. So again, just speaking to the ladies here, instead of fighting for the same rights as men, rather say, I will give up any right that makes Me more like Jesus. Because, by the way, Jesus, not Mary, is your perfect example. Ladies, you want to know how to be the perfect lady of God? Pattern yourself after Jesus Christ. Men, you want to be the perfect man of God? You pattern yourself after Jesus Christ. He says in verse 5, For in this way, in the former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, who, by the way, was an idiot sometimes. He was. He called her his sister because he was afraid he'd get beat up if they knew he was her, she was his wife. <laughs> okay? But Sarah just went along, called him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Don't fear anything. Just live for Jesus. The heart. Adorn the heart. Now, men, men, Verse 7, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker. Don't throw anything. This is God's Word. As with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and here's the elevation of woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Why do I have to be nice to my wife? So that your prayers won't be hindered. You know what that means? That means God saying, I'd love to listen to you pray, but if you don't treat her better, I'm paying you no attention. You show me love in the way you treat your wife, men, and then I'll hear your prayers. What's the point of all this? The point is, married or not, women are at their most beautiful when they are adorned by the Spirit of God. When they're adorned in the heart. When that is the pursuit. Not this. Men are at their most prayerful when they are elevating their wives as fellow heirs who walk alongside them headed for the kingdom. And that's good stuff. And that's the wisdom of Scripture. Again, there's a natural created order of things and we function best in that order. But they're all out of order in Egypt. The world flips it upside down just like what's happening to the Judahites, the Judeans in Egypt. The women are calling out. The men are quiet. The women are sacrificing to Ashtoreth. The men are going, yeah, whatever, honey, just make me cake. And and it's all messed up. (laughs) It's completely upside down. That is Egypt. That is the world. And that is not how we are called to pattern our lives and our behavior. Though we're watching the church do it. Verse 20. 
Then Jeremiah said to all the people, to the men and women, even to all the people who were giving him such an answer, saying, As for the smoking sacrifices that you burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your forefathers, your kings and your princes and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them? And did not all this come into His mind? So the Lord was no longer able to to endure it because of the evil of your deeds, because of the abominations which you have committed. Thus your land has become a ruin. An object of horror and a curse without an inhabitant as it is to this day. Because you have burned sacrifices and have sinned against the Lord and have not, number one, obeyed the voice of the Lord, or number two, walked in His law, His statutes, His testimonies. Therefore, this calamity has befallen you as it has this day. And then Jeremiah said to all the people, including all the women... Hear the word of the Lord, all Judah and all who are in Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel as follows, For you and your wives, you have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled it with your hands, saying we will certainly perform our vows that we have vowed and burn sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. Go ahead and confirm your vows and certainly perform your vows. What? Jeremiah is saying, hey, you've made vows to Ashtoreth. You've made vows to the Queen of Heaven. Fulfill them. Do them. Go for it. Go right ahead. You're going to sin? sin? Sin big. Sin hard or go home, man. If, you're, if you've made these vows, follow through. Go for it. Get the job done. John writes a similar message in Revelation 22, verse 11. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous practice righteousness. And the one who is holy keep himself holy. In other words, be who you are going to be. And if you're going to sin, sin big. You might as well. Just don't hide under a holy facade. Don't play games. Don't go around saying, hey, we're God's people on the one hand, while offering vows to Egypt on the other hand. You understand, Christians, what I'm saying here? What the Lord's implying for us? Don't claim Christ and live a completely opposite life. You live for Jesus. You fulfill your vows to Him. Don't play it both ways. Well, they were playing it both ways. Verse 26 continues, Nevertheless, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah and all who are living in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, never shall my name be invoked again by the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, as the Lord God lives. That was a phrase they used, kind of like we use, God bless. As the Lord lives, today's going to be a sunny day. You know, that's how they used it. God said no more. Behold, watch this, I am watching over them for harm and not for good. Jeremiah chapter 44 verse 27 is the exact opposite of Jeremiah 29:11. I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, right? Plans for hope and future, but here I'm watching over them for harm and not for good. And all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt will meet their end by the sword and by famine until they are all completely gone. Those who escape the sword will return out of the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, few in number. He still keeps a remnant. There's still grace. Some are going to get it. 
Then all the remnant of Judah who have gone into the land of Egypt to reside there will know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. You see, states in America and even federal law can, can proclaim that homosexual marriage is just fine. That's the word of our mouths. But the word that comes by the mouth of the Lord will stand. That's the one that we need to concern ourselves with, not the laws of man. Well, aren't we supposed to obey the laws of the state? Absolutely, unless they run counter to the laws of God. Unless they cause you to go against the Lord Jesus in your behavior, in your actions, in your belief. At that point, I say, I defy the law of man because I live by the law of God. And I won't compromise that. What verse was I on? 20, yeah, whose word will stand, mine or theirs? Verse 29. This will be the sign to you. Okay, so now he's of all this prophecy, this judgment that's going to fall on them, here's the sign that I'm going to do this. That I'm going to punish you in this place so you may know that my words will surely stand against you for harm. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm going to go give over Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies. To the hand of those who seek his life, just as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who was his enemy and was seeking his own life. So here's the sign. You want a sign? Here's your sign. (laughs) And the sign is this. When you find out, when you discover Pharaoh Hophra, who, by the way, was a friend of Israel, or of Judah, they were allies against Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't really their friend, but they were allies. And so the people of Judah, this remnant, thought, we got to go to our Lord protector, Pharaoh Hophra, and he'll cover us. Pharaoh Jimmy Hophra is our man. Okay? And he'll take care of us here. So they run to him, and God says, the one you went to, to for protection, you're going to see him assassinated by his enemies. When that happens, you're going to know all that I have prophesied to you it's coming true. That's the sign for you. That's how you know the immediate of this will be what's going to come. We'll, we'll prove to you what's going to come later. So the sign is the murder of Pharaoh Hophra by his enemies. Sixteen years after Jerusalem fell, Pharaoh Hophra was strangled to death by some of his own subjects, his enemies. He was killed. By that time, this remnant of Judah, of course, were living down in Tokpankes and Memphis, a couple other places there in the land, Pathros. And Jeremiah was once again vindicated in their presence by the very word he had spoken. 